it, it's pretty remarkable that the development that we've seen and um, you know with the passage of time and, and more commercial interest in in the game we're only going to see that that get even better well he's he's yeah well I mean he's had a good rest so <laughs> he might be right yeah special player uh, but I'll be banking from home don't worry I'd like to get the job done against those cats Welcome along to edition four of the heavy hitters of Hawthorne and we are hitting heavy today. We've got the CEO of the football club, a mainstay on this show because he's a rating winner, Justin Reeves. Hello, Reevesy. G'day, Howie. How are you? Wonderful to see you. Footy not too far away. We'll talk about that. The coach of the VFLW side, Beck Goddard, has joined us. Hello, Beck. Hi, Howie. Great to be here. And Director of Football and Board Member Richie Vandenberg, former star of the Hawthorne Footy Club, joins us. Hello, Richie. Good afternoon, Howie. How are we? Now, before we get too far into this, it's been a scratchy start because I was late for the meeting because I had the time wrong. And it's becoming obvious to me, Reevesy, that Richie might know a lot about football, but technology is not his strong point. Yeah, no, no. Richie's a a country boy at heart. He's going to be much better on the land, I imagine. (laughs) Are you all connected, Richie? Are you ready to go? Oh, I think so, mate. We'll see how we get on. See how we get on. Well, firstly, apologies that I was a bit late. But, Reevesy, more importantly, footy is around the corner. We saw the NRL kick off, and now the AFL, well, it's only a number of sleeps. How excited are you on the football club? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty exciting, isn't it? It's only, uh, what is it, about 13 days away or something till we play, 13 or 14 days, um, which is super exciting. You know, it's, it feels like it's been an eternity since uh, since round one back in March and uh, everyone's been, you know, aiming to get back to play and we find ourselves heading that way, which is re- really exciting for the club, really, really exciting for our, for our members and supporters. It's great to see the boys back on track. From a, from a football perspective, Richie, what are the challenges that need to be overcome in the next couple of weeks as far as the team goes? Oh, the obvious one is just how well... Uh, the boys have handled the the break both mentally and physically. I think we're going to, and we've already seen, I think, with Buddy, but we're, we're going to see some real risks around soft tissue injuries. Uh, we just hope our guys are, are honest with the amount of work that they've done and, and our fitness staff are able to um, monitor the loads going into blokes as they start to up the, the kicking and the agility, which is what brings most people unstuck. So... Hopefully we're in good shape, but that's going to be a, a real trick for everybody. And then have we got everyone in the right mental state uh, ready to, to attack the game? VFLW, Beck, will talk about potential moves towards an AFLW team, which I know so many Hawthorne supporters want to see happen sooner rather than later, and you are at the front of that queue. But as far as VFLW and the Hawks go, how has this whole period been? Because we haven't had the pleasure of chatting with you on the show so far. Yeah, it's been a, a bit of a strange one. I think, um, you know, the, the players and, and all the staff, they've got sort of, you know, their their other work and study and um, some some of the players lost their jobs as a, as a consequence of COVID. And we, we stopped training, but we've stayed in touch. I think that's probably the most important thing that's happened. Um, yeah, we've been having weekly Zoom sessions. We divided our players into sort of team houses and have had a few you know interesting challenges um over over the time just to stay connected and and to see what happens it's 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 a really important situation beck and it's going to become even more important as the squeeze comes on that female sports around the country not just in football aren't the ones that are going to get squeezed even further because pretty much already a very lean run operations yeah and i think the thing about that is is you know when when 
when something terrible happens, like a pandemic, um, what, when is the right time to start talking about what's new and what's coming next? You know, I've got, got an uncle who's a doctor and he, he says when, when you're sick, you're either going to get better, you're going to get worse, or you're going to stay the same. And I, I really feel that that's, that's the space that we're in with women's footy at the moment. And we're really lucky at Hawthorne that we've got that vision and we've got that leadership that we want to go to make it even better. You know, we know we're part of core business at Hawthorne. So the time is, is really perfect to be able to say, okay, well, we're ready to go. We've invested um, in our program and in our players. So what next? You know, if you get, you get burgled... Um, and someone st- takes your TV, do you go and f- try and find the old TV or are you going to go out and buy a new TV when it happens? And that's the opportunity that's before us. I love the positive approach and I'm sure that'll really uh, resonate with the CEO. How are you seeing female football falling under the auspices of the club at the moment, Reevesy? Because it's obviously such, as Beck said, a core part of the business. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we, we made a decision um, a couple of years ago that... Uh, to, to, to really focus in on our women's football program and, and that's when we sort of put all our efforts into the VFLW at the time because it was um, where we could sort of where we could start and kick off but we always had a vision and we've always been quite public with our vision that we wanted to be in the AFLW um, we think that we run you know a great football program um, traditionally for men but we think that should be you know for every uh, man and every woman and every boy and every girl that uh, the dreams of, of one day playing for the Hawks. And, and we don't shy away from that. You know, I mean, this has been a, um, a road, a, sort of a, a road bump, I guess you'd say, or a speed bump on the road. Um, but, you know, our, our commitment doesn't change. Our commitment's always been to the uh, men and women um, of Hawthorne. And, uh, you know, we, we'll deal with all each of those in, in isolation. But from a women's perspective, you know, nothing changes for us. They're still our people. Um, they're our players, they're our staff, they're our coaches, and we need to do, you know, operate in the best interests of them. And, and we feel more than ever that um, you know, we're a club that we th- we're really proud of, of our values and the way we go about things, and we think we can make a really good contribution to women's football, and uh, this is probably a time where we need to dial that up a bit. Yeah, my word. Richie, a lot made about the draw coming out in dribs and drabs, for want of a better term. First, we see the Hawks travel down to the Cattery for the first time since about 1862 to take on Geelong at home. Do you think, being a footballer that has had uh, a long and successful career, it's a crowd situation down there, which obviously won't come into effect, or it's more of a ground situation, which obviously stays the same? Yeah, I'll start with the ground. The grounds do, uh, the different grounds do have an impact on the way footy is played. Uh, longer and skinnier versus wider and rounder. So that does have an impact on the way certain teams play. Uh, having said that, Cadinia Park, I think the last time Hawthorne played down there, I might have even played in that game. Um, that was a long time ago. Uh, and I reckon I played on Gary Ablett that day too. So there you go. Anyway, uh, so from a Cadinia Park perspective, I think it's a bit skinnier and you know a bit of a different shape. So that probably will help Geelong um, because they'll be more used to it than we would be from the big wide ov- uh, oval of uh, the MCG, which is not even an oval. Uh, and of course, no crowds. So that comes back to this mental state that we're able to get the guys into because football, as we know, is a lot about momentum. Momentum swings one way or the other. Typically, when you've got a home crowd, when you start to get a bit of momentum and the crowd gets behind it, you can let that run go a little bit harder. Without a crowd, uh, all that momentum has to be generated from within the team that's there on the day. So it comes down to the leadership of your group, 
uh, and you know who's really got the will to do it. Uh, hopefully, it's our lads. Hopefully, it is. I have vague memories, and I'll get pulled up on this, but I'll say it anyway. I have vague memories of listening to the ABC radio around the grounds as a young bloke in the country, and the Hawks. I reckon it was down at Cadinia Park, getting belted by Geelong, fifty odd points at half time, and then Gary Ayres. Went from the back pocket into the middle, Richie. And at those stages, no one from the back line or the forward line ever moves positions. And the Hawks got the job done. So hopefully that that will happen again. So the specifics of training. Will the boys train in the lead up to that on a skinnier style ground? Do you adjust that much for one game of football or not? Yeah, well, there's two schools of thought in football just more broadly. It's either you focus on what you're doing uh, and understand that the opposition know what you're doing, but you just do it better, uh, and or you tailor the way you go about it to uh, overcome the strengths of the opposition and or the environment that you're going to play in. I'd suggest that uh, Clarko and our guys will stick to being pretty strong on what we want to do uh, and applying those principles for the, for the first game and seeing where that gets us. But without a doubt, they'll be thinking about what that means for ball movement in terms of not having the width that you'd normally have on the MCG. And Reeves, are you allowed in to Cadinia Park these days if you go and watch as a former Geelong man or they string you up outside the front door? Yeah, no, I'm definitely not welcome. And it's, I, mean, I, th- <laughs> I think within the, uh, you know, the limitations of, of the uh, protocols that we find ourselves in, I'm not allowed to go on this occasion. So this might be the, the, the first and last time we play there um, for the next 20 years and, uh, and I won't be allowed in. Uh, but I'll be barking from home, don't worry, I'd like to get the job done against those cats. Just on that very issue, there's been, again, it's been brought up in the NRL by Peter Volandis about the potential of crowd. I noticed there was newspaper articles about potentially grand final crowds, crowds later in the year. Has the club started to consult with the MCG and discuss how, why, when and what's possible, obviously within the guidelines that the government states at any particular time, Reevesy? Yeah, it, it's an interesting one. We, we, we've spoken to the MCC about a whole range of things, but really um, the MCG being such a widely used ground by the clubs and the AFL having the agreement, the, the master agreement with the uh, with the MCG, and the clubs all working together so collaboratively at the moment, we're so, it's a bit of a joint approach via the AFL. Um, you know, there's just so much to do at the moment and with I think we've said before, there's so little resources we're all actually pulling together pretty well and uh, the AFL are handling those discussions and then we're involved as sort of the third party um, and, and updated regularly via the AFL. You are listening to Hawthorne's Heavy Hitters. Our special guest to join us shortly is the great man Sean Burgoyne, four-time premiership player, three-time premiership player of the Hawks. You know, best part of 10 years, I had front row seats to watching Cyril jump on heads <laughs> yeah. every single every single game he would jump on heads. Um, and I've taken I think one in my <laughs> AFL career I took a few in the juniors right uh, where was the but, one where was the one uh, I get skims Collingwood at the G okay uh, a night game so Burgoyne goes up and takes a great oh, grab fabulous mark by Burgoyne he can do it all oh yeah silk and before we leave I want to get a couple of co- uh, thoughts from the people here about the great man Sean Burgoyne but Beck what is going on with AFLW? When are the Hawks going to have a side? There's been discussions this week, I see, in the media about Hawthorne and Essendon busting down the door wanting to get on. How's it all tracking? Well, for me, 
I'm really excited. I think we're in a really exciting period. And if COVID sort of anything with the AFL, we've seen how quickly the AFL has been able to adapt and change their plans. Um, we know there's only a short time between now and when AFLW preseason starts in November this year. Uh, why can't we? Why can't we have that license? Um, I think we've got to be um, really brave and the AFL has got to be adventurous in, in what it's doing. We know that 53,000 people turned up at the last grand final. Um, the AFLW has never been ticketed before. It's about to hit its fifth season. The AFLW might be in a position where it could be the only football competition this year that's allowed to have crowds. So what an opportunity uh, that would be for us. Um, and I just think, you know, people talk about, oh, well, there's no money in women's football. You know, where, where's that income coming from? But you, you actually really can't quantify it. You can't put a figure on diversity. And if COVID's taught us anything, it's, it's how important football is to the broader community. So I say bring it on. Season five, we're ready. Uh, those that are listening to this won't see that Becky's wearing a jumper that I need to get for my daughter that says the future is female. My 10-year-old would be resplendent in that, Beck. You know what? I, I think a, a little boy can wear it. I think a little girl can wear it. I've seen Eddie Betts' kids wearing it. I think, you know, anyone can wear it. And that's the great thing about AFLW in our community now is that it doesn't matter um, who you are. You can, you can strive to play football at the, at the top level. Which is an absolutely wonderful message. All right, Reevesy. What has generally been happening in the club over the last week from an administrative member's point of view as far as the footy season kicking off? What, what have you been trying to deal with it this week? Yeah, I guess uh, the key for us has been uh, the communication piece. So to make sure that our members and supporters are, are really effectively communicated with um, and kept up to date. There's so much happening at the club at the moment um, and really the only people in at the club at Waverley at, at the moment are the players uh, and the coaches and a very select football staff. Um, so the rest of us are, are working from home uh, as we were, as we have been for the last couple of months, uh, but really working together remotely to make sure that all of the things that are happening and changing so quickly within the footy club are being sort of sent out and, and updated to our members and supporters because at the end of the day, they're the ones keeping us alive. You know, we've been, as, you know, we've been so amazed at the level of support from our members and supporters over the past few weeks in a, in a, in a time that's with so much uncertainty. The one certainty we've had is the support. Um, so, we, you know, we need to pay that back. So, so we're probably, you know, I'd, I'd hate to think we've over-communicated, but we've communicated probably to a level we've never seen before. And just to bring all that together uh, remotely from outside the club has been, it's been a key responsibility for me. And to work with, you know, Graham Wright, who heads up our, our footy program, uh, to work with Riley because he's sort of really the you know the man on the ground um, within the club at the moment to make sure uh, that he's got the support he needs as well to be able to run the best footy program that we can. So they've sort of been the two key areas, you know, supporting Riley and the footy department and also making sure our members are communicated to. I mentioned that Sean Burgoyne is joining us soon, Richie. This is a man that just keeps signing one-year deals at the footy club and then just keeps pumping out fantastic games of footy. What do you see his role this year? Can he just play wherever he wants, as he typically seems to do? Yeah, he'll just run his own show, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We'll have a very structured environment and Silk can just be Silk. (laughs) Oh, look, I think think when you get... When you get to the level that, that Silk's got to, you, you get a little bit of licence. But the thing is, because he's got the experience, he knows how to use that licence uh, that's still within a, a team framework. And 
Oh, he's one of a kind. He's going to be the first 40-year-old. Will he be the first 40-year-old to play um, in the next couple of years, Reevesy? Surely you'll sign him up. Well, that'll, think, be up to, that'll be up to I you, think, folks. I think Boomer might have, uh, Boomer Harvey, or no, Dustin Fletcher, I reckon, just hit 40. So I reckon he might have to try and get to 45. Well, he's, he's yeah, well, I mean, he's had a good rest, so <laughs> he might be right. But uh, he's a pretty fit, naturally, uh, yeah, special player. And of the younger players coming through, obviously Mitchell Lewis made a real impact last year with Roughhead out of the side for a while. He'll get an opportunity this year. Is there a couple of younger guys that we haven't seen much of yet, Richie? And I know you never want to put pressure on young blokes, that, but you're excited by what you've seen? Yeah, there's there's plenty. Uh, plenty of young talent, which has been a real testament to uh, Riley and his team because of where the the club has been finishing especially through the, the premiership years and you know that development is now sort of the guys that are coming through but no there's a lot of guys there we're really happy with especially the, the last draft kids who have come into an extraordinary environment we saw a little bit of Will Day even this year in the pre-season um, he showed a bit and of course Finn c- carrying on the the McGuinness uh, name which is good to see uh, but Kajitsky and Walker, and there's a few blokes there that we haven't seen a lot of um, or any of just yet at senior level that I'm really comfortable will, will come through and bolster the side. And look, Mitch, Mitch and Lewis, he, he's going to benefit from having um, the big general around him. It's going to make life a little bit easier for him too, I would have thought. How's he tracking big John O'Patton? Saw him in uh, round one. Heavens above, is he a big unit? <laughs> oh, gee. Yeah, he is. He is a big unit, and uh, he's fit in beautifully down at the club. Uh, I think he's happy to be back in Melbourne. Uh, the guys have uh, warmed to him and he, he looked pretty settled and he gets uh, he gets to go up against his old team pretty soon too. So that's uh, coming around sooner rather than later. Beck, the improvement in the VFLW competition and then the AFLW competition, I've seen it over five or six years in the WBBL going to commentate Big Bash games and every year it just... Men's sport improves, but it seems obviously with the full-time situation now being provided to female athletes, it seems to improve at just an enormous rate. How much better are the athletes getting year in, year out now from your experience? You've obviously had a long history in the game. Yeah, it's it's mind-blowing actually. I mean, if we look at photos of the players in AFLW Season 1 to, to where they've just finished at in Season 4, and if you think about the fact that they're still part-time, so they actually only train at the club for for about five months. So the, the rest of the time is, is their own time. They, they can either go and play VFLW or go back to their own states and, and do what they want. But it's on them to, to sort of work out at the gym and, and look after themselves and, and work on their skills. So it, it's pretty remarkable that the development that we've seen. And, um, you know, with the passage of time and, and more commercial interest in, in the game, we're only going to see that, that get even better. So give me the name of a couple of VFLW Hawthorne players that I should be watching out for in the upcoming season. Oh, gee, we've got so so many great players. And you know what the coach is like. She doesn't want to name mm. a, a favourite pet and get it. And I know all of the girls will be listening to this. So as soon as I say it, I'm going to end up in trouble. So I'm going to politely withdraw from that. But it's – I tell you, we've uh, – I can't, I can't, guys. But I can tell you that some of the best performers on some of our challenges, and um, in terms of a singing and uh, vocal opportunity at the moment, Lou Watton, one of our fossils of the side, has been performing absolutely admirably. Should be on the Voice this season. Okay, we'll keep an eye for Lou. Just on that, I've already spoken to Sean. So he named. Uh, he was asked by my kids actually who his favourite Hawthorne player was that he'd ever played with. He named two, 
Uh, you get one go each. Reevesy, try and name one of the two. Cyril Rioli. Yeah, that's a hundred percent. You got that one. So, Rich, uh, it comes to you, star of the century side. I'll let Beck go next. You got to name one Beck. You got to name the second one. Oh, I was going to go Croft. No, Croft is not in there. Richie, Buddy or Hodgie? Buddy, it is. He went for Cyril and Buddy. So he wasn't chicken like you, Beck, and you, Vanders. He would actually go out there on a limb. Hey, before I let you go, um, Reevesy put me on to Sunderland Till I Die, which I've been enjoying, Reevesy. The coach just got the sack in the episodes I'm up to, so I've got a fair way to go. So, uh, Beck, have you got anything you've been listening to, watching, or reading in isolation for the Hawthorne supporters out there they might want to get a hold of? Oh, I've had a few different ones. Sunderland till I die was brilliant. There's a few coach sackings actually, so hang in there. Oh, you got you got a few more. You got a few right. more to go. <laughs> um, but um, I'm I've, I watched uh, Hannah Gadsby's Douglas this week on on Netflix, and uh, I highly recommend it for, for a laugh and actually a little uh, an amazing lady with with quite a story. That is impressive. Not as impressive as what I've seen on Zoom because. Richie, there's a lot of people that are after books at the moment. There are a lot of readers in my house. The library doesn't open until the 11th of June, but you've just come in with what has got half the Bowen Heads library in my local <laughs> library in your hands. How many books have you got and what are they, great man? Oh, no, we just um, it's, yeah, read a few books recently. Um, of course, a lot of Hawthorne ones, Howie, but no, no, uh, some interesting books there. It's a bit of Jim Collins, Good to Great. For the, I'm sure a lot of people have heard of Good to Great by it's Jim a, Collins. That's a ripper. But one that I found really interesting, which I'll put up here, which is a book written by a guy by the name of Eli Goldratt. It's called The Goal, and it's uh, about the theory of constraints. So find what your constraints are and solve those, and that's help, that'll help you to progress is basically the, uh, the gist wow. of it. It's a, I think it's a 1960s management book. It's very old. But anyway, and if you, interesting. If you're having if you're having trouble sleeping, maybe have a crack at that book from Richie because it looks a fairly thick <laughs> tour tome as well. That one, Vanders. Yeah, no, no. Uh, it's got a lot of pictures in there, Howie. Uh. <laughs> and anything for you? Anything for you, Reevesy, Before we let you go, that uh, you've come across that's kept you through this period. Um, yeah, I reckon I've uh, I've finished Sunday until I die, and um, I really did enjoy that. There is, as Beck said, there's uh, there's quite a bit to go, so right. stick with it. Um, and actually, I've been doing a bit of reading. The last week, I've I've been doing a bit of reading, uh, going through some of our. I've just uh, reread uh, True North, um, which is uh, which I, you know I try to read once a year, and just use this opportunity just before we go into the sort of season to read that again. Um, sure. I'll have to check mm. that one out. Have check that out. So, uh, yeah, it's good. It's a good read. Um, it's something where, you know, that, uh, that again, yeah, I say I read it every year, but it's um, it's worth reading. All right, one to finish with. Uh, Beck, it's not an easy one. Uh, this season, AFLW, will the Hawks have a side? The answer to that is? Yes. Perfect. Richie, the Hawks go to Geelong in a uh, much-delayed round two. Do they win? Yes. Perfect. And Reevesy, do I get a sanction for the fact that I turned up this meeting late because I got the time wrong? Well, we might have to uh, half your pay. <laughs> for nothing is nothing, so fantastic. <laughs> we'll send you a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh... Yes, do that, do that. Make it a positive one. Hey, guys, I appreciate you joining me. I'm sorry I held you up. Uh, have a wonderful, wonderful week. Footy is not too far away. Shawnee Bergon is joining us next, but thanks for having a chat with us on Hawthorne's Heavy Hitters. Thanks, guys. Go Hawks. Thanks, guys. See you later. Some real excitement to welcome this man to the show. Oh, Bergon, strong kicks, goals. 
clever kick, Burgoyne. Can he make something happen here, Shorty? He might, he might, he does, he does. To Burgoyne, Burgoyne within range. Look at that, that's Silk, S-I-L-K. Approaching 400 games of AFL football, which is quite extraordinary at Port Adelaide and Hawthorne. Sean Burgoyne, great to see you. How you going, mate? <laughs> Thanks for having me, mate. It's uh, yeah. Hopefully, we're coming down from these restrictions and get to back to some normal life very, very soon. Well, we were just having a chat before we got going as fathers. Yeah. I've got two, you've got four, and we were yeah. just discussing homeschooling. Shorty, how's it been for you and your crew? <laughs> Uh, it's been it's been all right actually. The first week was quite stressful, probably for everyone trying to get used to home, you know, ISO and you know, fifty emails coming out a day from two different schools about our kids, you know, how to get online schooling set up. And then once we got through the first two or three days, it was pretty much the norm. So um, it was actually good family time once we got through that stressful stage. <laughs> um, we found ourselves going for you know at one hour, two hour walks a day as a family um, to get out of the house, exercise and. Uh, but it's good now they're back at, well, two of them back at school this week and then the, the older two go back next week. What do you like as a teacher? <laughs> Not good at all, mate. Not good at all. Um, my wife, she's, a, she's the one with all the patience. So she normally started off um, and then at some stage throughout the day she'd tap out. <laughs> it got to her a bit and then I'd come in and um, finish off with the last probably 15 minutes of schooling where she's punched out two or three hours so. <laughs> I think that's the way we rolled in my house once one child was in tears it will be time for a parent to step away and the other <laughs> parent to come in so credit yeah. to all the school teachers out there if there's one thing I've taken from this Shawnee that's it I think every all parents now have got more appreciation for, um, for what teachers go through <laughs> you, you mentioned time with the family it must be I know how much of a family man you are, but it must be really special at this stage of the season where you are normally, as a professional athlete, so focused on yourself, mate. To be able to spread that focus a little wider, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it is. You know, we're, we're obviously, uh, most days I'm gone before the kids wake up and get back and um, they just get up from school. So to be able to spend more time with them um, throughout the day and then on the weekends as well, because we're normally uh, travelling or playing, has is, is been some great family time and Especially for my youngest one, uh, Nixie, um, you know, who's um, I've got the bond with her has gotten a lot stronger now because um, I'm I'm with her every day. Normally they're all mummy's kids because she spends the most time with them. But it's good to be able to strengthen that and watch them grow. So, um, but yeah, I'm very happy to get them back at school. <laughs> Just while we're talking about family, it's a it's a it's a pretty all encompassing question. But what does it mean to you to be a dad? Oh, it's probably. It's hard to explain, or well, it's pretty easy to explain. If you're a dad like yourself, you know exactly what another dad's talking about, um, the joy you get to, to see and feel uh, when you bring them into this world and then to watch them grow and then to have those milestones, you know, first step, first walk, first day at school, um, you know, all those things, which is, um, I think, for me, it's probably the, the reason why I've been put on this planet <laughs> is, to, is to be a father and hopefully be a good one um, and to make memories with them. Um, and now, if you throw football in there, I'm in the, you know, I'm closer to the end of my career than the start. To be able to have the kids come and, and watch me play footy and, and take a real interest. And hopefully when I'm dead and gone in years to come, they, they take their kids to the footy and talk about um, what they used to do as a kid. And, and hopefully it's a bit of a tradition um, that a lot of probably families go through. 
I'm a sucker for the moments when um, athletes run out in milestones with their kids and holding their hands or after, you know, you're lucky enough to play it in four premierships, one at Port and three at Hawthorne, when your kids have been involved and they've been out on the ground. What are those moments like for a dad? Unbelievable. Um, you know, to to go through the journey of your footy career and then to, to share that with your teammates, but then to share it with your wife and your kids is, is even takes it to greater levels, um, you know, and then before those big games, before those milestone games, talking about them to your kids when they're, cause they're very inquisitive and, um, you know, my kids have been super lucky. They're probably running through more banners than any other kids <laughs> in the history of the game. So, um, they've been to so many grand final parades. It was a year, a couple of years there where they were saying, so when are we going to go into the over for the grand final? And, um, and to share that, because when you come off, you know, they see as a footy player um, and the dad, they see when you come home and you're banged up and you're bruised and you're sore and you, you can't walk properly and all those things. And then, so they kind of ride the journey through. They probably don't understand the significance of what you're going through at, the, at that time, but they see, you know, behind when you come home, what you're like, and then to see you right out on the big stage and, and, and play footy and whether you win or lose, um, they're there. And, you know, they get really, really excited when you, when you win and, as soon as you, we lose, they're the first ones to come in and, um, you know, uh, try and put a smile on your face. So it works both ways. And when you win a grand final, you see the looks on their face. And, um, you know, the club does a really good job of capturing all that on, on film and then giving it to the families as well. So we go home and the kids watch themselves for a while and, and relive the moment. That's super cool. While we're on the topic of family... Shawnee, can you tell us a bit about your family and and your history and your background and your culture of where your people are yeah. from? Yeah, so um, I'm originally born in Darwin. Um, so my mum's family's from Darwin. Um, so I'm a Warrow man, which is just south of Darwin, uh, near the, I don't know if you know, the, uh, the Daly River area. I do. So yeah, it's just around that area. So uh, And my, my dad's a South Australian, so he's a, he's a Kukutha man from the west coast of South Australia, over near the Western Australia border. Um, so that's a bit of my family and then we moved around a lot as, as kids um, so we were born in Darwin um, we moved to country South Australia my dad my dad grew up in Port Lincoln so pretty much called that home um, and then when I was uh, you know roughly an early teenager it was a decision was made to have a crack at footy and move to the city um, at 15 and and then, yeah, schooling was also a part of it. <laughs> uh, but I put all my eggs into playing footy. Um, yeah, so, yeah, we moved back and forth a couple of times uh, when we were kids. You know, my older brother, Peter, um, he he's obviously five years older than me. So when we were living in Port Lincoln, it was t- time for him to have a crack at footy. So we moved across to the city, got him set up with the Port Magpies. He was able to get drafted um, to the power. And then we moved back to the country. <laughs> And then the same thing happened again when it was time for me. So I was kind of like, um, you know, I've seen it happen with Peter and so I just followed in his footsteps and then moved to the city and stayed there ever since. Talk about your people. This morning I was looking on the uh, National Reconciliation Week website and the yeah. first thing that pops up on there, Shawnee, is a map of Australia and then you can zoom in with a microscope and look at all the different areas and all the different groups and clans yeah. and tribes around the country and it's it's my ignorance i didn't realize the number of different tribes that are represented across the nation as a whole it's quite extraordinary yeah it is there's you know there's over oh, i think there's over 250 or, or 500 um, different indigenous tribes throughout australia and over five 
something like over 500 different dialects. Hmm. Um, so that just goes to show how, you know, how, how many different Indigenous groups there are, um, you know. So, you know, the, the languages are all different. Um, there's a couple of similar ones who are next to each other, but um, people who are from South Australia can't speak the same language as the people from Northern Territory or Western Australia um, or even in the same state as well. Um, they're all different. And there's so many. And if you look at that map, the, the AFLPA's map of all the Indigenous players, both male and female, you see where everyone comes from to play to play football. Mm. Um, you know, there's they, they come from everywhere, from the city, from the you know the country, rural communities, um, everywhere. So it's a really good um, talking piece for people to have a look at, like you just said. Has any of those languages been passed down through your family to you or not? Yeah, um, they have. It's it's quite hard because. Um, Indigenous languages have been, it's probably a lot, it's a lot different to the English, whereas English document everything and write everything down, whereas Indigenous, uh, Indigenous people, majority of it or, you know, most of it is, is passed down through stories and, and pictures and um, you see examples of, um, you know, rock art and caves and, um, but a lot of it's been passed down through, through word of mouth and, and storytelling and it hasn't been since the last, I'm not, not too sure how many years, but... Um, the last few years where people have tried to write it down and, mm-hmm. and, and get it written down to pass it down. So it's it's normally been passed down word of mouth. So uh, myself personally, I can't speak my language fluently, um, but I'm always learning. I wish I'd taken a bigger interest when I was younger to speak it fluently. Um, but, you know, my dad and, and, and then other family members can, which is disappointing on my behalf. <laughs> um, something that I can always te- um, learn and um, what I do know is I do try to teach that to my kids. We're smack bang in the middle of Reconciliation Week at the moment and the catch cry this year is in this together. What does reconciliation as a word mean for you, mm. mate? Well, I think it's just a continual ongoing um, efforts to, to combine Indigenous Australia with non-Indigenous Australia. Um, I think we're always fighting battles um and i think reconciliation is a um a really good spot to or a good word to bring people together and to stop the fighting and stop the arguing and about what happened um you know australia's got a a really checkered past when it comes to you know the history of this country um we cannot we can't change we can't change that but it's something we can always learn from and um you can always teach your history. You look at Japan and Egypt and mm. all these countries overseas. You can just name them China. They know their history. They teach their history and they pass it down. And in Australia, we're still we're not at that point where we're teaching the history and we're not um, passing what happened here down to to the generations of kids to come. And you know, it's not about it's always it's not about blaming anyone or you know. It's just teaching. It's our history. You can't change it. It's just learn from it. Um, what actually happened? How do we, you know, we're still moving forward. There's still some things to be to be done. Um, you know, we um, we had National Sorry Day a few days ago. You know, Reconciliation Week. Uh, but it's just about learning from the past and coming together and building towards the future. And um, I think we live in one of the best countries in the world. Um, and why not continue to to make it better? It's interesting you say that, Shawnee, because I know we're talking about school. If I'm talking about my school experiences, history of Australia began the way I was taught it in the 80s with Captain Cook arriving and the dates of significance and, and the first fleet. And I don't think it really hit me 
how inaccurate that was until I was in Tassie quite a while ago now, um, Bruny Island, a place there, and and there's a, a big layout about Indigenous culture, and it talks about invasion. And it was the first time I'd read that word, and it just hit me right between the eyes, and I was like, I, I don't want this to be too political, but, <laughs> as an, but as an Australian, it hit me between the eyes reading that word, and I was like, wow, well, that is the only way you can see it. And, and I started to talk to my kids about it, and what they're learning in school now is different to what I learned. So yeah. maybe there's some progress being made. Yeah, there is. It's obviously getting better um, each year and as um, more information comes to light and you want to be accurate as well with everything you're teaching. Mm. You don't want to be teaching. So there's also there's different point of views. There's different. There's probably different accounts of what actually happened. But, um, yeah, so you always want to be correct as well with what you're, what you're saying, especially with the history. But it's something we've got to learn from. You can't change it. You know, it happened 100 years ago or 200 years ago or 300 years ago or thousands of years ago. It's just learn from it, and um, and you you want to teach your, your country's history, um, the correct history, as we go on. And when I was, I was the same as you when I was coming through um, as a kid, and we were learning about the same type of things. Um, yeah. I'd come home and talk to my dad, and they're like, "Oh, well, it's actually um, true. A certain part of it's true, but it's not the whole story." If there's if there's one thing from both your mother and father, one one separate quality or value or approach to life that they instilled in you what what would they be um oh yeah it's probably a few different ones but yeah i've always been brought up to be humble um and and be respectful of others so um they're probably the two um that um stick with me and um you know i know there's play footy and i'm very privileged and we're in a lucky situation to be playing footy and being paid to play footy and there's always someone worse off and someone always going through a tougher time and families who are always going through a tougher time, even now with what we're going through in the, in the world. Um, I'm pretty lucky at the moment because there are people who are out of work, um, don't have jobs, who have families to support. Um, and I'm just always mindful that there's always someone. So always being humble no matter what comes my way. Who did you first play footy for as a little bloke? How old were you? Which is the first <laughs> team you played for? Well, back in Paul Lincoln, they, they, they treated us pretty rough back then. They just chucked you in. Right. Um, under, yeah, they chucked you in. So under 10s, they chuck you in. We, back when I was a kid, they just chuck you in when you was five, six years old in the under 10s <laughs> um, and get out there and learn the hard way. Um, yeah, so I think the first couple of games, they might have been just swinging on the point post, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but neither, and they always need to make up numbers, you know, they're always two or three players short or just grab that little, just grab him, he'll chuck him in. So... Um, so yeah, so I grew up playing for Mallee Park in Port Lincoln and in the under 10s. So, and what um, was it about footy? What what grabbed you about it, Shawnee? Well, I think when you're in a small country town in summer, it's cricket, and in the winter, it's footy. Um, you know, you want to you want to be out there playing. Um, you want to you know be with your mates, your friends. You know, before school, after school. You know, even during school, kick the footy. You know, bowl. You know, throw the cricket ball down. Um, all those things. So you've got a chance to hang out with your mates. Um, hmm. try to, used to try to get to school early so you can play. Well, I think you Victorians call it Jack in the Pack. That's it. We call it Marks Up in South Australia. Yeah, yeah. Uh, used to try, you know, play Marks Up and take, take speckies and um, obviously then watching, you know, your uncles and family members play footy before you. So my my goal when I was a kid was I just wanted to play for Money Park and play in the A, in the, in the a grade, in the ones um, growing up. So... You know, there's no better chance than hanging out. So I was always a person who wanted to play team sports, not individual sports. So 
you could always hang out with your mates, you know, and, and have fun majority of the day. Hey, because you've talked about speckies, Shawnee, <laughs> uh, as you know, I've got a couple of kids, and often when we do this, they ask a question of the guest. Yes. And when they heard you were coming on, the excitement, Shawnee, in this <laughs> house is through the roof. But you're talking about speckies, so you get a question early doors. These normally come at the end from my eight-year-old son, whose name is Mac, but he operates as the big penguin. That's just the nickname he gave himself, Shawnee. So yeah. when you're talking about speckies, I thought uh, time for him to ask you this question. Hopefully you can hear it. <laughs> Hi, Shawnee, big penguiny. We love you. I think you're one of the best Hawks players. I go for the Hawks, by the way. How do you take amazing screens? Because I've been practising so much with my dad, but I just, I sometimes get it, but I don't always get it. How do you take amazing screamers? How do you take screamers? Well, for, you know, best part of 10 years, I had front row seats to watching Cyril jump on heads (laughs) every single single game he would jump on heads. Um, And I've... Taken, I think, one in my AFL career. <laughs> I took a few in the juniors. Right. Uh, Where was the but, one? Where was the one? Uh, I get Skims Collingwood at the G. Okay. Uh, a night game, so. Burgoyne goes up and takes a great grab. Fabulous mark by Burgoyne. He can do it all. Oh, yeah. But I jumped on the smallest player's head. <laughs> uh, I think it's Taylor Adams, who's not right. that high. Uh, but Cyril used to take hangers every week. And... The other side. Oh, oh. Prevails, Rioli. <laughs> Good. And then kicks to centre half forward. Neat looking to go. Oh, yes. Cyril takes a special and goes bang. It's a beautiful thing. In watching him, just uh, is a big penguin. Yes. Big penguin. So yeah, he he just watched the ball um, and he's just so explosive. Just run and jump. I don't think I ever seen Cyril use his hands. So he had natural natural explosiveness, but. Um, he just basically practiced as a kid growing up trying to jump on people's heads Jack in the Pack Jack in the uh, Pack well he loves Jack in the Pack yeah so you get better and better and then in the last few years since Cyril's gone I've had Poppy you know, trying to take over the mantle <laughs> so um, but no very good question but yeah I had front row seats for the best part of 10 years I'll pass it on to him was there another career path that you were going down if you weren't going to play footy or was it always footy? Like when you're at school and you is the old careers day, what was Shawnee Burgoyne putting his hand up to do? Well, it was either, it was either PE or woodwork. <laughs> woodwork? <laughs> woodwork. Right. Making, making little one-metre one cabinets <laughs> with not very not very good joining, uh, joinery, whatever you call it. Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, so probably I would have went into um, carpentry or something like that. Um, a lot of my mates who went to school, but in Port Lincoln and um, or in, in Adelaide, got into got into um, building in, in the trade school. So I would have went down that path. Um, I wasn't too sharp in the in the in, a, in a school classroom, <laughs> uh, so it was either have a full crack at footy, and then if that didn't work out, I would obviously went down the the carpentry path. We mentioned at the start you were talking about your family moved around a lot, and then when your brother. Peter got drafted. So what's Peter? Is he sort of four or five years older than you? Five, yep, five. So, so what was that like for you? He's sort of 17, 18, and you're, you know, 12, 13. Did it open your eyes to what was achievable? How was that process for you watching your brother go through it? It was, um, it, it, it was at the time, um, you're just not really too sure what to think about it. It's your older brother, he's playing footy, um, 
he's going through the you know the state teams you know and he starts playing league footy and then he gets drafted and then um, so he he was obviously 17 80 when he got drafted I was 12 you know turned 13 and it became pretty clear I, I wanted to play footy and then just the same steps you know we live in the same house eat the same foods sleep you know next to each other in the same room and it's just what what did he do to to get there um, you know listen to your coaches you know all those different things so it made the, the pathway was pretty clear to follow once he got drafted and it was pretty exciting because uh, we lived in Adelaide then we moved back to Port Lincoln but it gave us an excuse to go to Adelaide to watch the footy so you know six hour drive to watch the footy is not that far so wow. <laughs> you know drive there watch the footy um, stay a day or so and then and then drive home um, so um, yeah the, the pathway became pretty easy and at the same stage we had um, Byron Pickett, um, who's from Port Lincoln as well. Um, when we moved across to Adelaide, Byron Pickett lived with us um, because him and Peter started out with Port Magpies, and um, he lived with us for a bit of, about a year, um, which was which was good. So both Peter and Byron were drafted, and, and the pathway was set. You know, obviously Peter got to stay in Adelaide, and Byron was drafted to North Melbourne. Um, by then, it became a, a a career quickly became a career path for myself and a lot of younger other players. So myself, uh, Graham Johncock, uh, Daniel Wells, Eddie Betts, Lindsay Thomas, hmm. Harry Miller, um, Elijah Ware, Derek Wanganing, um, Byron's younger brother, uh, Marcus Pickett. So then we all came through and, and followed in their, in their footsteps. So when you get to the AFL, you got drafted. So this is your and your... Is this your is this your nineteenth season? Uh, well, my first year season was the twentieth, so two thousand one was my first year. Two thousand and one. So you walk into Port Adelaide for the first time at seventeen or eighteen, and you walk in there, and there's this, just yeah. these massive men that are professional football. Like, what, what was your initial impressions of the AFL world, Shorty? It was well, my. <laughs> I had a, a groin injury. I lost the itis pubis. Um, when I first started out um, in the AFL, um, and I couldn't run much, um, <laughs> and I couldn't do much at all. So, uh, well, I did. I, they kind of eased me through it, but they pulled me up quick, smart, and um, so I got a really um, front row seat to see how how the, the best players train, how Matty Primus, the captain of the club, would train. You know, Matty was a freak runner. Um, he was a top ten runner. Um, he was probably the best player in the in the gym in the bench press and best player in chin-ups um wow he was a super hard trainer so to come in and watch your captain who's six foot eight or whatever be up there with the midfielders in everything and then in the gym um, and in the recovery track to watch him was something that i you know because I was, I was obviously injured i got to train along and see what it was like to actually well that's what i want to be like that's what you have to train like um and then obviously warren treadray uh, Michael Wilson, Josh Franco, um, those guys were unbelievably hard trainers and, and dedicated to their craft. And um, Port Adelaide were a, a mature team when I got drafted there, so I had a lot of mature players to look up to and um, who were very, very experienced. And um, it was very easy for well, I got drafted with Kane Corns and Dom Cassisi, so it was very easy for us to see those guys um, as young kids come in and, and, and train and want to be like them. Your first game. Against is it uh, St Kilda? Was it? Yeah, St Kilda. Eddie had yeah. What's your memories? Your first game. I had a look at the, <laughs> I had a look at the stats table, Shawnee, about your first yeah. game versus St Kilda. What are your memories of it? 
yeah, sitting on the bench for probably four, <laughs> for three and a half quarters. I presume that was the case when I looked at the stats table. Yep. So you sit there and then like you run on for the first time. Yeah, it, um, it was exciting. St Kilda had a lot of good players as well. Um, they were really well. They were. Well, they had a lot of young players coming through. Obviously, Rewalt and Kaziski were just the same draft as me. They had Stephen Milne who was coming through. Then you obviously had Garrick and, and these other guys, you know, Robert Harvey. So they had a really good um, team. They were obviously going to come on to be, a, you know, a, a very good team like, a bit later on. But sitting on the bench, mate, that's what, what happened when I first started. You sat there for um, – you start on the bench, you sat there and you come on for the third quarter, second quarter for five minutes, you come on for the third quarter, and then if they want to rest a couple of star players or there's an injury – you maybe got half the last quarter. Um, I remember just tack- Stephen Mill running into open goal um, and chasing him down and tackling him about a meter from the a meter from the uh, the goal line, um, which was which was good. Um, but yeah, it, those first few games, we were just sitting on on the bench until someone got injured, and you didn't want anyone to get injured. But that was pretty much the only way you got on the oval. Being a man that's played three... Oh, what, were, what were my stats? Probably two Ooh. kicks. Oh. <laughs> three kicks. I, I, I don't, <laughs> don't want to say. Um, I was back pocket as well. Though. One disposal. But it was one a good disposal. I did. I hit my target. There you go. Yes. And the tackle as well. I actually saw the tackle of Stevie Milne yesterday. But, mate, 377 <laughs> games. We, we could sit here for 37 hours to do this podcast. So I need to skip forward a bit. A premiership at Port Adelaide, the first premiership for the club, which is obviously extremely special in the AFL. You've won four grand finals, but what's it like to run out with your brother on grand final day and succeed? Yeah, it was unbelievable. Um, well, the Port Adelaide story is probably a unique one in itself. You know, we I think 2001, 2, 3, 4, we won more games than anyone else. Yes. Um, we were probably the best home and away team in those four years, uh, but Brisbane were the best finals team. Um and we never got to the we never got to the grand final until two thousand and four. So we uh, we just couldn't put it together in the final series. And Collingwood and and Brisbane Lions did. Um, and Brisbane Lions obviously go on to 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 win a three peat. And we don't even make you know we we made the grand final once since you know in, in four years. So there was a lot of choking um, stuff going on about Port Adelaide, are we chokers, all those things, and they were very warranted, and it created a lot of pressure. Mm. Um, and all the players who who came there were under under the microscope. And then 2004, when we were able to get there, actually get to the grand final because the prelim against <laughs> the prelim against um, St Kilda went down to the wire. Oh, did didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, Gary. If Fraser Goat, oh, I believe a lot of people probably agree, if Fraser Goat didn't kick his 100th goal in the first quarter, we would have lost that game. Um, because St Kilda were absolutely giving us a spanking. Um, you know, they, it, was, it was like 28 points to two or something like that. And then he kicked his 100th goal. Oh. The crowd come on. Um, we got a chance to regroup, talk about um, what we needed to do. And then we kind of sapped St Kilda's energy and we were able to come back yeah so St. Kilda were probably furious with their fans because it was their fans who ran on the oval um or probably a lot of poor fans too and held stopped their momentum hmm. um and then we basically win by one goal and then get into the grand final and you see a lot of players with tears and celebrating because of the amount of pressure we were under and then to get to the grand final and play there and and win to share it with Peter obviously Byron lived with 
Byron lived with us as well, and, and Gavin Wanganin's a cousin of ours as well. So it was a very special bond to have with, with those other three guys, um, but also the entire footy club, what we've been through the last three to four years to get that and, and the relief. Of, <laughs> there was a lot of relief going on about uh, winning the flag as much as you know celebrations. What's the defining memory of it for you? Like a moment after the game or with your brother or listening to Choco? Or what, like what's the defining memory you have of that first premiership? Oh, the, probably the, the first thing that comes to my mind is when Daryl Wakeland and Lynch got into a fight and I was standing right next to him. You, and was, you were there when the punch-on <laughs> was happening, was it? And yeah, and, and Lynchy was trying to punch holes holes into Daryl. Yes, he was. <laughs> he, he was swinging, and but luckily he kept missing. Um, it was a funny one because everyone's like, "Why didn't you jump in?" And I'm like, well, "Two six foot five men <laughs> swinging. Me and Jason Akamanas, two small guys." And initially, when it started, I looked at it, I was like, "Oh, help!" And I was looked, and then I was like, "No, nah, I'll, I'll cop one." And I was like, "Oh, should I?" But then the ball was actually coming down, right. and I was like. And it flicked in my head that um, if I went there, Acker would just lead up and get an easy mark. So I was like, just stay with him because the ball was actually coming down. <laughs> uh, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. Everyone, like, um, it, was, it was pretty funny because I think uh, Lynchy might have either tore his quad before yeah, that or during right. that fight. Yeah. So um, <laughs> it was um, a little – that's probably the first thing that comes to my mind. And then just obviously the, the celebrations and that and – soak it in and just you know reflect on probably the last few years we'd, we'd gone through why did you leave port adelaide <laughs> well there's probably a combination of things my knee uh, my brother retiring um you know a whole different range of you know falling out of love with the game there and um the different the different dynamics of the group um not enjoying going to training not enjoying being around your teammates, all those different things. Um, and it was one of those things where um, there was also a lot of a lot of speculation around myself and Dom Cassisi about the captaincy, all that different, and that club, that that was getting to me as well. Um, you know, once the once the decision was made for Dom to be captain, I pretty much wanted to move forward, support Dom, and and, and play footy. But it just kept staying around and around and around um, and kept coming up all the time and I was honestly sick of that sick of you know my knee and like I said and I wanted to a fresh start and me and my wife had you know only ever come to football my wife came here funny because her dad played for Collingwood in the 80s so my wife lived here as a young kid Um, but she only has a few memories so we thought well why not let's move to Melbourne well for her move back to Melbourne and live in Melbourne and See how we go for a few years and then potentially move back, and it's been 11 years now. So if you look at it, hundred. if you said that was the last game you ever played and you finished at Port, you would have finished as a 157-game premiership player. Like, that is an amazing <laughs> career. But now there's 220 more games with the Hawks and three more premierships. So <laughs> either of those careers, any bloke playing the game now would say, I'll have that one. I'm going to have that <laughs> career... So did like did Clarko ring you? How, how did the, the contact happen, and why did you decide Hawthorne? Yeah, well, um, yeah, obviously 
157 games. Well, I spent nine years at Port, yeah. 157 games, premiership, you know, all those things. Geez, you, know, you must so. be getting old, Shawnee. Like, you must be getting old. If we're I've, getting... Got, I've got one grey hair there. Right, okay. it's, it's actually, it just came up. Okay. Um, it came up last year. I wasn't too happy about it. So, <laughs> I'm getting old. But, yeah, Port Adelaide are a huge... So, my wife as well, she... Her dad is a Port Adelaide legend. Um, she's a Port Adelaide girl. Um, her dad owned a, they owned pub they owned a pub in Port Adelaide. When I go back there, I spend all my time in the port, so I'm never too far from there. Um, but we thought it was a good time to get out and, and try something new. Um, and 157 games, I'm very very happy with them there. And you know the the career to play for Hawthorne, um, well, it became an easy one because Alistair Clarkson was my line coach. You know, obviously he was a coach at Central District. Yes. And then he came to then he came to the power, and he became my line coach and my mentor um, at Port Adelaide as a, an assistant. Um, he'd do things like take me to the women's and children's hospital and visit sick kids, you know, kids with cancer um, on my day off and to get my appreciation for how privileged we were. And so he would do things like that outside of footy with me. Right. Um, so I had that bond with him. Um, um, Andrew Russell became... Um, a really good friend and mentor to me. He was our fitness coach at, at Port Adelaide. Um, he came to Hawthorne. Um, so I had two really strong uh, people I um, have links with at the club. Um, and Brent Guerrero was there, um, Stephen Gillum, a couple of other players. Jeff Morris was in recruiting. So some other Port Adelaide people were there. So it just became, once I'd made my decision to leave, to, to look at the club, and I was like, well, I don't want to go to a club where I don't know anyone. Um, I want to go somewhere where I'm going to be, you know, well looked after. Um, I knew what Andrew Russell was about with the fitness and, you know, medical point of view, what he was all about. So it became an easy decision to, to pick Hawthorne. And once a decision was made, it was, yeah, let's get there. You mentioned a couple of times your knee, and it's it's one of these stories that floats around football you know, that the Hawks got you there and maybe it was two or three years and that'd be it. And, you know, as a Hawthorne fan, this bloke comes across, how's his knee going to hold up? Where did you see your career in relation to your knee? I, I don't know if you saw another 220-plus games and another three. I don't know. What did you see, Shawnee? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a tough one. When you're 26 and you've never had an well, I had one injury before that, pretty much, but you think you're bulletproof. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, the surgery, yeah, my knee was, was in a really bad way. It's still, I'll have a bad knee for the rest of my life. It's just got to look after it and, you know, not put on too much weight so not much so the weight doesn't go through the joint, but I'll have a bad knee for the rest of my life. It is what it is. Um, but I, the, the surgery I had, yeah, what I was told from the surgeon, Probably didn't give me too much hope when he was about to put me under. He said, this is either going to work, Sean, or it's not. And it's going to be the end of your career. Wow. Oh, sweet, mate. Thanks. Now you're going to put me under. Oh. Wow. <laughs> so that was pretty much <laughs> the last words um, the surgeon said to me before I went under on the operating room table. <laughs> um, so I didn't think I was in for too much longer when he said that to me. Um, but, yeah, obviously I had the surgery. was on... Um, I was on crutches for 12 weeks after um, the surgery where I couldn't put my foot on the ground because it would wreck the surgery. Um, and then the medical staff and that all took care of itself. So, um, yeah, it took a um, – I think the, the thing about Hawthorne when I got there is first thing 
Mark Evans and Clarko said to me, um, along with Andrew Russell, was we don't care if you miss the first 10 weeks of the first season, we're going to get you right so that way you're, you can play longer than three years, if hopefully, um, and you can have a good life after footy. Um, so let's not worry about that. And just so happens that my first game I played in the VFL, I broke my jaw. Yeah. So, um, I, yeah, snapped it through there and um, it gave me an extra four weeks of running on top of the, the shorter pre-season I had because I was was in rehab. So um, the approach they took from the start was don't worry about if you if you don't play the first few games, which I didn't. I didn't play the first four, I think. Um, but we're here to, for the long run. And it was interesting because at that time as well, Hawthorne, we're given a lot of got a lot of flack from people in the media saying they've given up too much for me, I'm never going to play again, um, all those different things. So they, they caught the fair bit of pressure as well um, at that stage. But, you know, they, they were really good and the, doc, the medical staff were really supportive as well. How did you deal with that when you couldn't play and you read in the paper that this club... What year are we talking, Shawnee? Did you come across? 10. Okay, 2010. So obviously the premiership in 08, 9 didn't go to plan. 10 was a bit of a struggle early doors as well. So how we, how do you cope with it being a professional athlete when things aren't going well? Yeah, it was, um, it, it was frustrating because I came to a new club. You want to impress your teammates. You want to do that as well. But they, they kept saying, just slow down. You know, It, it did help that... The senior players at Hawthorne at the state at that time said, "Just you know, take your time as well." So there was no pressure from them, and then we obviously got off to that bad start um, as well. And you, you're sitting in the stands and you, you're getting frustrated because you just want to play. Um, we actually had, made a good run in the second half of that season and played finals. Uh, we lost to Frio over in Frio, I think, in the first final. But um, the, the start cost us. So um, I, I was pretty diligent in my in my rehab and recovery um, because. I was, as an athlete, um, or as a footy player, there's no point in getting back if you haven't done the work and you break down again. So I was really concentrating on doing the right rehab to get myself back to when I came back to play, I could actually make an impact and and do what I've come to do. And, and that's helped Hawthorne win. To play 377 games, we'll talk about a couple of specific games shortly when we get to the real good stuff, when the Hawks <laughs> just became an absolute powerhouse. How... Okay, physically, what type of preparation is required to play 377 games from a from a diet perspective? How disciplined are you? Yeah, I'm probably one of the more, or hard to say what the other guys do, but I'm pretty anal and pretty strict on what I eat and what I don't eat. In what, um, in what way? Give, give me examples of how much of a dedication is required for you. When I first got to Hawthorne, um, Port Adelaide had bulked me up on a, for some reason on a bad knee, the weights program they gave me. So I put on five kilos of muscle. Yep. So I was, I was at 94 kilos, roughly 90, 94 and a half. Um, and the first thing they did was said, we've got to strip you down to 89. So um, obviously you have to watch your diet, what you're eating. You know, if, you know a lot of it <laughs> sounds, sounds like I'm, I'm in homeschooling here. Um, you know, a lot of vegetables, fruit, cut out, you know, um, Takeaway, um, water, um, lean meat, lean you know chicken, a lot of fish. So all that stuff. Um, I decided. Um, well, it wasn't I decided? We were in a, on a bus on the way to to, to Tasmania um, on the. Um, well, we're, we landed in Tasmania. We were driving in the bus, and Hodgie said he'd given up chocolate and lollies for, to see if he can do it. And I was like, "Well, I'm going to do it too if you're doing it." Um, so I gave up chocolate and lollies. Um, 
And then about a couple of months later, I said, mate, I'm still going. Are you? He's like, no, I only did that for the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? I was like, I'm still going. <laughs> uh, so, so I haven't eaten chocolate or lollies in probably seven or eight, six or seven years now. Um, so I gave up that because I wanted to take – I want to have less sugar in my body. Um, I want to have more natural sugars from fruit um, and stuff like that. Um, I don't venture out too much um, about fruit and you know fruit and vegetables and, and lean meat and you know seafood. <laughs> so um, when when, when, when when you pull the pin after four hundred and seventy games and seven premierships, let's say let's round it off at seven, like Tucky, when you're done yeah. and you retire at that point. What's the first meal you're going to go and have? Like, what's the thing when you walk past the fridge and think, oh. Oh, well, <laughs> I'm fighting the, the fight now. My wife's trying to, and my kids are trying to get me to eat chocolate. We just came through Easter and we've got like, we've got a hundred or 200 eggs in the house. And we're like, just try some, Dad. It's Cadbury. You love Cadbury. You used to love Cadbury. Um, they eat chocolate in front of me all the time. And they're like, just try some. And they're like, so they blackmail me. If you love us, Dad, you would eat chocolate. Oh, um, no. Yeah, they pull their ones out. You don't love us. You don't eat chocolate. We want to enjoy, we want to enjoy this with you. Um, so that's probably. I don't know if I. I don't know. It feels like if I eat some chocolate now, I'll just undo all the hard work I've done and not. Okay. Um, so that stuff, and then you. Um, but it also diet, but you're rehabbing it. You, you know, your attention to detail is what gets you to play a long time. Um, I'm at the stage in my career where when I'm in the gym, um, whatever's given in me in my program, I do. If, you, if I skip one exercise um, or one rep or something, I feel like, well, I'm going to do my knee. Well, I'm going to do my hamstring. So I don't – I do exactly what's on the paper and I don't do any more, I don't do any less. And then if I am going to do over and above or, or less, I speak to the, the weights coach, the you know, or the physio or the doctor. I make sure I speak to two or three people <laughs> to get a, a rounded opinion of what I should be doing. So that's the what you've given up and the physical side of it. You can't play that many games without a certain mental approach because you have ups and downs like anyone in life and there's things going on away from work and your work's footy and you have good days at work and bad days at work. You have injuries, you have successes. Yeah. What have you learnt mentally to able to achieve this type of longevity, mate? Yeah, well, probably when I started, if you asked my, my older teammates at Port Adelaide and you asked, well, one of the fitness coaches, Dave Arnfield, who, who's a Port Adelaide legend within the club, a fitness coach, he, they would say that I was a pretty mentally weak person and I wasn't very resilient. Oh. <laughs> That's what they would tell you. Um, they would tell you I wasn't strong at all, uh, which was probably spot on. And for me personally, I needed to hear that from my teammates and I needed to hear that from the people in charge of physical and you know the strength and conditioning guys I needed to hear well you're actually not strong you you need to get stronger you're not resilient we need to put you in situations where you need to get tougher physically and mentally um, that's why you do pre-season camps which borderline you know torture for athletes because you're supposed they're supposed to be hard and they're supposed to push you to your to your brink of, of you know of what you can achieve and I think over time I've become better in this area. I'm not, still not where I want to be, um, and I still want to be more resilient and more mentally tougher. and And I think that's where footy has enabled me to to challenge myself with those things um, to to keep playing. You know, when I have an injury, you know, just test it tests your resilience. When we have a loss, you, you know, 
your mental capabilities of how do you bounce back, um, you know, all those things. So I've come a long way um, from when I first started at Port Adelaide because I actually, when I was at Port Adelaide, um, I had a teammate, Michael Wilson, who probably most people don't know, but for me, he was probably the most, ment- he's probably the, the men- fit- mentally tough. He's probably the most mentally tougher. Is that the right yeah, word? Mentally tough, yep. He was the, the, he was the guy. Um, run through brick walls. Um, we spoke about the premiership before. He needed two shoulder reconstructions. You wouldn't have known that. Um, hmm. People don't know that, but he played the whole season with, with two bung shoulders um, and he was able to push through. And when I came through, I actually wanted to try emulate and be like him. I would, I would never ever get any, I would never get close to what he is because he's a freak of nature with his mental strength. Um, but it gave me a good reference point to where could I get to and what could I try to achieve. And like you're saying, when you have those bad losses and all that, it's just an opportunity to, to learn and grow from it and then and come back. And, and pre-season, I hated pre-season when I was first started um, because I wasn't, I'm not a good runner. If you come to training now, I'm last on the track. I'm last every, most of the long endurance stuff. Oh, most really? of the, yeah, I'm not, I'm not good at all. But when I approach it, it's an opportunity for me to, 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 to get better and to try bridge that gap on the, on the, on the boys who are in front of me. Um, and that's exactly what I do every session is I try to get better and, um, and try to make those small gains. So, um, even though there's all this talk right now about shortening quarters and all those things, I I'm actually against that. I don't I don't like the shortening of quarters, and and I'm the worst endurance athlete there is. I think it's a it's actually it's a it's an opportunity to to tough it out and and to play and to push yourself. What's it like, Sean, walking off the MCG after losing a grand final? <laughs> I've lost two. Yeah. One, for, one by a world record margin. <laughs> so how was that? Like uh, it was Geelong's premiership. What you lost by? What did you lose by? A hunt of one hundred nineteen points or something. One hundred seventeen points. So, so you talk about the mental side of the game. What's it like at half time in a grand final or halfway through the third quarter when you know? Yeah, well, we're done. It was, it was pretty weird because we, I'm pretty sure we played Geelong a couple of weeks before down in Geelong and we'd won. Yeah. Um, so we actually went into the, the grand final where we thought we could actually we could actually win because it wasn't beyond us winning against against Geelong and we just had a, an awful day an awful awful day it was there was only what probably one or two players that could hold their head up hold their head up high um, but apart from that it was just complete embarrassment um, you know a lot of soul searching and I remember the weeks afterwards in Adelaide because Adelaide's obviously a footy town there's two teams if one team wins and the other loses the, the rival supporters just give it to you every chance they get um, but it was embarrassment um, for I think a lot of players didn't even want to go out of the house in Adelaide for a long time um, what did the coach then, say what did the coach say at the end of the game <laughs> well there's there's not much you can say to be honest it's just you know we we, we just lost it on the on the day Geelong were on fire um, isn't Complete embarrassment. I'm too, not too sure what he said, to be honest. I don't think there's much he could say. Um, and then, obviously, just trying to put the pieces back together over pre-season, um, rebuild your, your confidence, because it did take a take a hit, and there was a lot of embarrassing moments um, during that game for everyone. Um, and then, 
yeah, it took a, it took a while to recover from that one. The Sydney one where we we lost in two thousand twelve to Sydney was it was is a different one again because um, I think two thousand and twelve, thirteen, fourteen, and fifteen, whatever it was, that was the only one we went into as favourites. Yes, uh, um, and we lost the one we favourites, but you know, won the ones we were underdogs. So that was a tough pill to swallow as well because. Um, we were in a position to win the game, you know, and so was Sydney. They obviously win, but we just let key moments get away from us. And I think we used, the, as a team, we used the fuel for that to, to go on the next couple of year, next run for the couple of years after that. So that was more of um, the 2007 grand final was more of embarrassment and humiliation, whereas 2000 12 well, was more of frustration and we let that one slip you know we may not ever get back here because that's that's the the truth of it is you may never ever get back there you may get this one chance to get back there and you know there's no automatic you're going to be here next year so it was one of frustration and fast forward nearly 12 months three-quarter time in a preliminary final i'll put my supporter hat on here hawthorne's down by 20 points to geelong probably my favourite quarter of footy I can remember in recent history because the, the teams lost the 2012 grand final. They're 20 points down at three-quarter time in a preliminary final against Geelong who have got their tail up. What are your memories of that last quarter? And we will need to include your goal in these memories, Shawnee. <laughs> um, I just remember that it was positive. Um, the, like, we were in the game, even though they were up by 20 points. It was, guys, we're not out of the game. We can actually still... We can still win, guys. Um, but but, but they're, they're saying that and they're believing yeah. it. Are you believing it at yeah. that point? Yeah, well, I actually I was in the, I was one of the believers. Um, they're probably there may I've never asked all my teammates, but there may have been one or two guys who didn't believe it. I'm not too sure. It's a, it's a probably have to ask all those guys individually. But for me personally, I believed it. I was in the moment thinking, yeah, we can win. We're not, you know, we've got enough talent in this group. We've got enough, you know fierce competitors to want this um, and that's what we went into um, in the, well that's what I went into in the last quarter and um, yeah there were just some key moments in the game you know we had a lot of shots on goal where we missed as well um, but I thought we were right in the contest Ball comes to you deep in the right forward pocket at the MCG <laughs> game on the line five minutes yeah. to go Burgoyne picks it up then what happens? <laughs> yeah it was, it was funny um, I actually well, I didn't know at the start when Jimmy went um, because <laughs> um, he kicked the ball from full back and um, I was the man on the mark um, and they kicked the ball out and I just followed the line of the ball and I don't know where actually he went, but he um, didn't come with me. <laughs> and then the ball, obviously the turnover came back and I was by myself and just yelling for the ball. And then I kicked, as I got the ball, I looked up, he started running at me. The first thought I was to actually dodge balk him and to go around. It's probably why he, he got so close to smothering the ball yes. <laughs> because it, it, it did go through my head to try stepping, but um, um, I ended up just kicking kicking the goal, um, which was probably I should have in hindsight I should have kicked it a lot a lot sooner <laughs> instead of getting a lot closer. Um, and then it was just a bit of relief when it went through. Um, but yeah, it was a it was a funny game. Um, well, funny. You know, I kicked. I, I did kick three goals, um, but one of them, I kicked a, a snap from on the like a, a kick from the goal line where I got a ball and 
brushed a tackle and kicked the ball, um, you know, from the goal line and found out after the game that the ball went to my wife and she dropped the mark. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, that's, uh, I, I love that bit about the game. So I kicked, as I got the ball, she, my wife said she started, she started screaming and then I kicked the goal and she was jumping up, cheering, and then she was like, oh, shit, the ball's coming. <laughs> and then... It was. She was sitting on level one, like you know, the, the yeah. second level yeah. or level two, whatever that is. Yeah. And then as she she tells the story, she went to mark the ball, and David Hull's wife spoiled her. <laughs> um, and I said, "Oh, I'm going to get you in the park and do some, uh, do some, you know, kick the ball into your hands." But that's a. I love that bit of the story as well. That she able to, you know, well, there was eighty plus thousand people there, and I kicked the goal, and she could have marked the ball. That is a great a great story. So, mate, 13, 14, 15, three premierships in a row. We don't have time to go through them all in detail, but yeah. do you have an enduring memory? We talked about the memory at Port Adelaide and, and, and the punch-on, but do, do you have an enduring memory from that just incredible period of success for your footy club? Um, yeah, there's probably a few moments. Um, there was one where Hodgie gave a speech against Fremantle, um, and uh, he said, uh, I think it was after half-time or something, he came out and he go, his, his speech was... Um, um, I, I want Fremantle to kick the first three goals because I've got faith in this group. We'll come back and we'll win. <laughs> and I looked at everyone else. I was like, no, nah, mate, I don't want them to kick the first three goals. Um, <laughs> and then after the game, I went in and I was like, what about your shit speech? He was like, and the boys were like, yeah, what were you saying that for? And he was like, but then Hodges, Hodges is always right. And he was like, well, I was right, wasn't I? We won. I said I had faith in you boys. Oh, so I love that 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 bit of bit, bit of speech he gave. Um, but then, all, um, you know, the, 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 the Sydney game was unbelievable. I, the second quarter was probably the best quarter as a team um, I think I've ever been a part of or ever played. I don't know how many goals we kicked in that second quarter against Sydney in in fourteen, but I don't know. There was that was out of this world. Um, everything came to we we on the back of that quarter, well, back of that half of that quarter, we we'd won the game. Yes, um, I'm not too sure how many goals we kicked, but that that period of that quarter will will stick in stick in my head, and then. The the fifteen one, um, we just got so many memories of Cyril. Um, you know his rundown on um, oh, Hutching Hutchings. Yep. His rundown on him was oh unbelievable, out of this world. Um, a lot of my memories of that game are just him, um, just doing what he does, and you know so different memories, but they all hold each each premiership. Um, has a different story to it, and what we went through as a team to get there um, was was you know crazy. Some of the you know the, the different stories leading into those grand finals, um, you know the whole year. So they hold, all hold a special memory. You talked about Cyril. Now you get the daughter. Uh, the question from my daughter, <laughs> ten Shawnee. You've dealt with the big penguin, and he's wanting to know about how to take speckies. Now you get the pickle as she the operates. Pickle. You get the pickle. Yeah. All right, Shawnee. Here you go. Shawnee Burgoyne Pickle here. You're my favourite player at the moment, but we were really sad when Cyril left, like really sad, because we always liked to watch him take marks and all the stuff that he did. Who was your favourite player that you ever played with? That's a tough question. That's a very tough question. Well, probably, well, probably two, there's two, probably at Port Adelaide, um, 
um, Gavin Wanganing was my, my idol as a kid growing up, watching him play for Essendon, winning a Brownlow, and then coming to Port and then playing with him. So running around with my, my childhood idol, who's obviously my, who's obviously my older cousin, um, was I loved being able to play with him, who, you know, Essendon team of the century, Hall of Famer, everything, you know, Brownlow. So he, he's one. And then at, at Hawthorne, um, it's, it's probably playing with, with Lance and Cyril. Um, Lance will go down as um, one of the best players to ever play the game. Um, and then, you know, I mean, obviously, hopefully he gets a kick his thousandth goal this year. Mm-hmm. Crossing my fingers, he gets there. Um, and, and and Cyril for, um, obviously, um, everything he's done. Um, you know, retiring early, um, being an excitement machine. Um, you know, our families have, have, have known each other. Well, my, my mum's from Darwin, have known his family f- forever. Um, he's... Cyril's uncle is my godfather, <laughs> so I've got a connection there. My dad played with a lot of Cyril's uncles and everything as well, played footy up there for St Mary's. Um, so I've got that special family bond with him, but I'm very, very sad and, and disappointed. Well, well not disappointed. Um, I'm disappointed that I didn't get to play another two or three years with him, but, you know, Cyril's been living away from home since 14 and boarding school, wanted to go home and be with his family and, and start the next phase of his life and... Um, which I'm pretty happy for him to do, but I still miss playing with the little fire. But yeah, Lance and Cyril, uh, you know, there's a couple of other guys who, who are very close to them, but um, just to, I've been very, very lucky to play with a number of great players. What's he up to at the moment? I'm sure you're in touch with Cyril. He's a mysterious character. He's never easy <laughs> to track down. Well, what's, what's the great man up to at the moment? What's the last contact you had with him? Um, um, well, he, he played uh, played a game of footy up there. He did, yeah. The Terry Bombers and kicked a couple of goals. Um, so I think he's just working and can, uh, becoming a builder. So, um, yeah, so he's up there. Um, I'll be up and down at some stage in the next year or so, uh, the next break we have, um, visit my grandfather and, and um, my family up there. So I'll bump into him at some stage when I'm there. What's it like walking off the MCG we talked about as a loser? What's it like walking off as a winner, especially in relation to three in a row? Like three in a row. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, well, unbelievable. Well, the first thing, yeah, it's just unbelievable. Well, you know, there's 100,000 in the crowd. So the whole game is you're just buzzing. The adrenaline's running through you. Um, and then as soon as the siren goes, you know, the... the the exp- the, what we live stage with me is the expression you see on everyone's face. You know, your, your teammates' faces. You know, some are crying, some are laughing, you know, hugging, and then you run over to your, the, you know, the wives and the kids are all on the sideline ready to come on to, to see their their faces and um, the emotions. It, it just shows. Um, you know, it doesn't. You know, um, it's not just the team who who wins the twenty two. They're the ones on the field, but you see the support staff. You know. You look at the, the amount of people from club land on the oval, the sports admin people there, you know, it takes a, a club and, a, you know, it takes a, a whole network of people to, to win and you see everyone because everyone has a, a role to play within a footy club to, to win a grand final and to see everyone out there and they get just staff members and the families get just as much joy out of a grand final win as we do as players. I was looking back yesterday, Shawnee, on Alistair Clarkson speaking to the group, I reckon it's before your 350th game, and and he spoke really well as he does as he as he has on this podcast before. 
give me an Alistair Clarkson story, just from somewhere <laughs> along the line. Just just tell me something about the coach. A Clarko story? Yeah. Um, oh, it's funny. Oh, he's got so many stories. Um, um, pre, any of the pre-season camps we go on, um, Clarko's right in there with it. Um, I went on a, an early one at Port Adelaide. Um, uh, he, he probably put my life at risk once. What did he do? Myself. Oh, so we had a group, um, Matty Primus, Adam Kingsley, a few of the, few of the boys in my group, and um, we had to hike. It was a group race, you know, run, you know, three or four hours through the bush to get to one point to another. And we went up um, the wrong way. And then we could either, we went about an hour the wrong way, literally. Um, so we could go back an hour and back the right way. So then it would be two hours pretty much or we could there was a, a cliff that we looked up and we could climb a cliff and, and Clarko just looked at it and he was like oh I reckon we can climb that <laughs> um, and then the, and the rest of the group were like oh okay let's climb that cliff um, so it was probably a 20 metre cliff 30 metre cliff um, um, and then we got up to the top and I was the last one and I couldn't reach I couldn't reach, so we, we, well, he, well, him and Matty Price and, and King is made a human rope. So they dangled Toby Thurston's off the cliff and they held onto his feet. <laughs> they held onto Toby's feet and, um, and, uh, um, somehow in, in me holding onto the cliff, I spun around. I was facing the wrong way, so I actually wasn't facing the cliff. I had my back on the cliff and I was facing away, so which became a bit more dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I kind of um, grabbed on the Toby and they, I kind of grabbed on the Toby and they grabbed on the Toby's legs and they dragged us up over the cliff. So <laughs> there's there's probably one which was really funny now at the time was probably <laughs> a little bit dangerous and then there's a number of stories like Clarko just joining in in preseason camps like that and. Um, yeah. Very, were you very there when stories. he were you there when he got wound up and allegedly punched himself in the face or not? Yeah, I was there. I was there. Oh, um, tell me about again, that. He, he just wasn't happy. I think we played. Uh, we must have played. I think we played Port Adelaide over in Adelaide, and we'd lost and came back, and he wasn't happy with his messaging leading into that game, um, and that's exactly what he told. Um, told himself and he was so angry he said something like um, something oh, I'm not happy with, he's like you can't repeat exactly what he said <laughs> but I'm not happy with with myself I feel like I feel like punching myself and then then he said it so then he just whack, punched himself but he he did it harder than he actually intended and he kind of like I think he gave, he gave himself a concussion and he must have but it was funny because then um the boys all sat up and everyone was like, oh, sh- he's actually serious. And there was, you could, the tension in the air was reeling. And then kind of meeting finished or something and he said, pretty much give everyone five minutes off or whatever. And everyone walked out and then Michael Osborne, who's a jokester, found a helmet and walked in and put a helmet on the ground and wrote um, OH&S and stuff on the thing and then he ca- uh, on the board. And he came back in and had a big laugh about it. But then... When the when the tension had gone and everyone started giving him some some crap about it, some stick about it, you know what are you doing? He's trying to, con- he's like, yeah, I think I can cut myself. But ah, uh, yeah, that, there's a lot of stories like that, throwing throwing oranges in the rooms and doing all that stuff. Like, he tried to get Matt Suckling to go halves, and when he punched the wall at the MCG and put the hole in the wall, yeah, 
he blames Matt Suckling for that, and he tried to go halves in him, tried to tell him to go halves in Well, because he'd done something on the ground that had caused yeah, it, I had think, he? I think Matt Suckling missed the target, <laughs> and he punched the wall, or something like that. So there's a lot of stories in that, yeah. Um, those early days at Port Adelaide, I have a number of funny memories with Clarko, because um, obviously being my line coach. I looked at it yesterday. Shawnee, footy clubs have been really good. I won't hold you up much longer, mate. You've been so good with your time. Um, yeah. Footy clubs have been so good in the last few years about taking us into the inner sanctum. And a video was put out in conjunction with the Hawks and the AFL when you were about to play the game that would signify you would play more games of AFL for football than any other Indigenous player in the history of the game. And I'll ask you how that sits with you in a moment. But you were doing a, a quasi almost fake press conference and I saw like the names that were coming down there, Wanganine, Pickett... Uh, the cocky was there, and Garlett, <laughs> McAdam, Pierce, Stokes, yeah. Wingard, Johnson, just these indigenous legends just started walking down the seats of the MCG, and you didn't know, and then you turned around. It's one of the best things I've seen in footy. It is. My wife, that week, um, kept a lot of secrets from me, what she had planned, because I actually didn't know what was going on at all. Nothing. I had no idea. Um, driving into the MCG, the club had asked me to do a photo at the MCG with the wife and kids. And then um, it's funny because when we were driving on the way in, we could see the traffic, um, outbound traffic on the Monash banking up. And I was getting angry with my wife because I was telling her we're going to get caught in that traffic on the way out. And I wanted to turn around. I was, I was just like, we'll just ring the club and say, I can't make it. Who cares? We don't need to go. And she was like, I didn't realise it. <laughs> so I was trying to cancel it because I just didn't want to do it. Um, so she, we got there and um, doing, yeah, like a fake press conference and a fake interview and stuff. And to see all the boys come out um, really took me by surprise. Um, you know, some players flown in from interstate as well. Daniel Pierce came from Adelaide and um, Lindsay Thomas and Daryl White came down from Brisbane. Um, so I got a, a later on, I, got a, I didn't show them at the time, but I got a bit emotional just to see everyone who took the time out to um, come and, you know, say hello and, um, you know, to... For me, who um, I don't think um, I'm anything special <laughs> to take their time out to come and to be a part of um, a, a personal milestone was um, yeah very very humbling and you know just goes to show those guys um, you know what type of guys they are to come out take their time out of their day to come down you know even from interstate. What when you say you got emotional, what does that mean? Oh. Um, I don't know. It probably triggers a lot of things, to be honest. When I'm just growing up, never wanting to be the this, you know, the center of attention. Never wanting to have the spotlight, like you're saying before. You know, growing up and being humble, um, have the spotlight on yourself, is, and to celebrate a personal milestone is probably not a good example of that. <laughs> so it probably stirred up all those emotions. Um, um, yeah, and then obviously thanking my wife for watching the stuff that she was doing, you know, behind the scenes with the PA and the club and the AFL organising these special these special things. Um, you know, even, you know, the, the club organised, um, got silk shirts. Um, I had a, Brett Ratton pulled me into a fake meeting before a team meeting and I was like, what's the Rats want to talk about this stuff for? I don't need to be wasting my time. And then... Um, we walked into the team meeting and my wife and kids were there with all the players all decked out in white shirts and, and Clarko sang a song. Um, so Rado did a really good job of um, distracting me for that. Um, so I got emotional with that. Um, you know, and then 
day of the game, the, the club flew in my my um, my nephew um, and my, my cousins like Graham Johncock, um, Harry Miller, um, you know, my, my brother, his brother Barry, so my, my, my closest cousins and my nephew um, and then family and friends flew in from interstate as well um, to see that that week was... The whole week, at the end of the week, was an emotional week, to be honest. The coach sang a song. Is this uh, one of the famous <laughs> guitar songs? Yeah, it is one of the guitar songs. So yes. what was the... Can you remember any of the lyrics? Uh, what was the gist of I the just, song? I actually haven't got it at the moment. I'm, he's got it written down. I'm, and the club taped it. I just haven't got it. Actually, I haven't got it. It's on the website. Is it? Uh, yeah, it's on the uh, one of the club recordings. So I need to actually listen to the actual words. But it... it Actually, it made sense when he was saying it. <laughs> I, I love him um, for that, the, the fact he's prepared to put himself out I love it as there. well. And it's funny because everyone has seen those T-shirts, Got Silk shirts. I get hit up on social media. <laughs> Where those, can we, get, can we buy some those Got Silk shirts? My, my family and friends all text me and I was like, they only made 200. I think they only made 200 or something. But everyone wants one. So, um, yeah, it's yeah, it pretty funny. Mate, a real change of gear before I wind you up. Obviously, it was all across the paper when there was stories. You never know how much is true about you were considering moving from the Hawks and going to the Gold Coast. I'm not sure what you can say, what you want to say, what <laughs> what, what happened, but what's your reflection on that time? And you obviously didn't do it, so the end result of that is why, I guess. Yeah, well, obviously, Gold Coast made an approach to me to... Um put a multi-year contract in front of me, obviously a couple of years playing and a few years working. Um, to, be, to be honest, I had a lot more money than what I'm getting as well. <laughs> um, and then it was a big decision, especially when you, you know, you're coming to the end and that, an opportunity like that, which doesn't come around too often, no. at 37 years of age, <laughs> um, or 36 years of age, I actually forgot how old I am, to be honest. Um, um, what's the best decision for me and my family going forward? Um, and I'd only ever been to the Gold Coast, to be honest, to the beach, and so we actually needed to actually find out. Um, and there were no guarantees from Hawthorne as well at that stage. Um, and then go up there and see, actually, can we live there? Can we, um, you know, uproot ourselves again? Uh, when I first came to Melbourne, I only had two kids. Um, one was a newborn and and one was three years old, the two boys, and now I've got four, um, could we go there? And after going there and getting all the information presented to us, um, you know, about, you know, what, what's going to take and require to live there, and then, you know, then obviously getting, obviously, a deal from Hawthorne, um, we decided the best thing for our, us and our family was to stay here and, and play for Hawthorne and finish my career here. Um, and we... Had to make the best decision. The best decision, football wise and family wise, everything was to stay here with Hawthorne, and which is a club I love, and it's my club, and I want to finish my career here. But how close did make, you get? Um, well, close enough to go there and check out some schools and real estate. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> pretty close, then, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty close um, because you can't make life changing decisions without having all the information presented to you, um, and then you make a you know a, re- a responsible decision. So it was close, but um, Hawthorne's my team and I wanted to finish my career here. And um, I, always knew, I probably had a feeling it always in, deep down I wanted to stay, but I needed to make that decision. And it's a family decision to make with the kids as well. So, But I made the right decision to stay with Hawthorne and, and finish my career here. And um, 
in you know I think you know to to finish it here would be you know something that um, would would be better for me. Have you seen any of um, the doco with Jordan, The Last Dance, or not? Yeah, I've watched it. Yes, you seen yeah. the whole thing. Yeah, I watched the whole thing. Yeah, you'll notice there, and he's a perfect example. In that last season, every press conference he does is, yeah. "Are you retiring? When are you going to finish?" <laughs> um, and like it's driving him crazy. And then they all pause and say, "Okay, Michael, but." Is this your last year? You faced those questions for I don't know how many one year deals you've done. You've been facing those questions for five years. So yeah. to turn that on its head, what do you see your footballing future as, and what do you what do you yeah. hope it as? I do, I do get um, those same questions as Michael does, but not on the same scale. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not on the same scale. Not when he's got uh, fifty reporters yeah. all asking. You know, I, I might have one or two. That's about it. But. Um, I've always had the same approach. You know, I signed a three-year deal and then I think a, a one-year deal with a kicker and then pretty much they've all been one-year deals for the last 11 years or whatever. <laughs> um, so it's always been the same thing. Um, if I'm physically and mentally um, good and I'm getting a kick, um, I want to keep going on, um, you know, and then um, I sit down with Clarko and, and, and Graham Wright uh, and talk to them at some stage, do you see a position for me going forward? And also the medical staff and the fitness staff, do you see any cracks in my body? Are there any uh, cracks that are opening up or appearing? Physical, you know, talk to the, the conditioning guy. It used to be Andrew Russell, now it's Luke Boyd. How do you see my body? Do you, and they're always honest with me. So um, medical staff, and, you, know, the phys- you know, the doctor and the physios, do you see my body breaking down, yes or no? be honest and they've always said no we see you going wrong fine um so that's the approach i have i speak to those guys and then marry that up with my own mental my own you know what am i feeling physically and mentally um and then take it from there so it's always been the same um and i get the same questions every you know every yeah, of course year. You do. um so it's um, you try to answer the question in a different way so it's not boring, <laughs> but you always pretty much give the same answer and that'll be the same this year. Um, I'll keep playing and then I'll have a chat with Clarko at some stage. Do you see me going on, Clarko? Do you not? Um, yes or no? Um, so there's a tough decision. There's a tough conversation coming along at some point, um, which you know, I'm prepared for, whether it's this year, next year, the year after, because I've always had the... I've always had the the approach that I would never say it's my last year, um, purely for the fact is as soon as you put a a ceiling on what you can achieve, there'll be a whole lot of negativity that will follow. Mm. It's my last year. Take a shortcut here. Take a shortcut there. Um, you know why do this if I'm only going to retire? Um, so I've never I've never followed that 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 path. I've always been positive. Just keep going. Um, and if when it happens, it happens. Um, while at the same time in the background preparing for life after footy so when it does come I'm prepared so that very question do you envisage you must have envisioned your life after football where does <laughs> where, like where does you know you're going to be 48 the way you talk another 2, 3, 7, 8, 9 six, <laughs> but what, what's the next thing you'd like to do with your life after dedicating so much of it to football Shawnee um to be honest, just be more involved with my, my kids. Obviously, I'm going to work like everyone um, work, and then just more involved with my kids. I want to. I'm. I'm. Re- well, I really want to be 
at all their trainings. I want to be at all their games. You know, I want to I want to be a part of it. Um, I don't know if I'll ever coach any of their footy teams or basketball teams or anything, but I want to be a part of it. I go. I do help my son's footy team. Um, you know, help pick up the cones, do help one or two drills here and there, but take more of an active, more of an active role in their lives and be a part of. You know, they they they. I know they're growing, um, so um, yeah, that's probably where I envision myself. Obviously, get employment, but you know, being at everything at the moment. So I try to do that now as well. Um, try to get my stuff done. I try to rush home to get there for school pickup um, if I can to pick them all up one by one. Just do the follow the little little route we go, you know, <laughs> through the back streets. So you stay off the main roads. Um, yeah, so that's probably where I'll be heading. It was wonderful. You did a couple of games and. We did at least one, maybe two games together when you came in and did triple M football, and I was sitting there calling, and you were doing special comments, and you did a really nice yeah. job of that. Do you enjoy that side of life? Very different than yeah, media. Yeah, I do. It's actually it's fun. It's actually challenging as well. Um, you know, to um, to to commentate a game or special comments to you know to paint a picture for people who are listening, so they can make their own minds up what's actually happening on the field is. Um, something that is exciting and I did enjoy it and you guys do a really good job um, so hopefully um, I can get back and continue that as well life after footy because I'd, I'd like to probably not the commentating stuff that's actually as you know uh, that's a hard skill to master to, to commentate live play by play but to do more of the special comments and that is something that um, does, I do like and being a part of it, and it gives you a different appreciation and a different view of the game any media organisation that had you working for them would be very lucky, I reckon, Sean. <laughs> Final question for the kids listening. And you've got kids and I've got kids, so you know the significance of this question and you could take two hours to answer it. But for any young kid out there that has stars in their eyes and dreams about achieving something, whether it's a sporting dream or a schooling dream or an artistic dream, one bit of advice from you, Sean, as to how to go about achieving some success? Oh... For me, um, well, growing up, my my mum and dad always taught me to respect my elders as a as a cult, you know, from our culture, you know, respect your elders, do do what your elders say. Um, so then I took that approach in the footy training. Um, whatever my coaches said, they were always right. I try to do what they told me, even from a young kid under tens, twelves, fourteens, seventeens. I try to do what my coaches wanted to do. Um, they obviously passing down their knowledge whether that be at suburban level or senior AFL level they've got a lot more knowledge than you as a kid and that's exactly what I try to do is do what they do what they told every single time and just practice um, practice growing up in Port Lincoln walking to and from school we had a football we'd walk and try to kick and hit that stoby pole or in Victoria you call them light posts yes is that right yes yes South Australia with stoby poles so I used to try kick hit that stoby pole used to try to dribble people's balls through people's driveways as you walk past the houses on the way to school and home. So I always had a football in my hand, always, you know, before and after school. Um, I probably slept with my footy as well, you know, in, in the bed. Probably most kids do that. So probably two things, yeah, listen to your, listen to your, your, your coaches and just practice. Shawnee, it's been a treat for me to chat with you. Thank you for being so generous with your time and may everything that you want from here happened to you going forward you've made a lot of people a lot of happy memories in footy clubs both at Hawthorne and Port Adelaide so may it continue thanks for having a chat mate no no worries mate thanks for having me well done